Proverbs 24, starting at verse Okay, Proverbs 24, I'm going to read uh, verses 19 through 26. Fret not thyself because of evil men, neither be thou envious at the wicked, for there shall be no reward to the evil man, and the candle of the wicked shall be put out. My son, fear thou the Lord and the king, and meddle not with them that are given to change, for their calamity shall rise suddenly, and who knoweth the ruin of them both? These things also belong to the wise. It is not good to have respect of persons in judgment. He that saith unto the wicked, Thou art righteous, him shall the people curse." Nations shall abhor him, but to them that rebuke him shall be delight, and a good blessing shall come upon them. Every man shall kiss his lips that giveth a right answer. Amen. All right, so um, if you wanted to, like if you're one of those people that likes to write in your Bible or take notes or whatever, uh, just to kind of give you a, a preview of where we're going, verses 19 and 20 go together, but we're going to spend about five seconds on those. I'll explain that in just a second. Verses 21 and 22 go together, and then verses 23 through 26 uh, go together. So you kind of got three sets here in what we're going to look at uh, this evening. And the reason, the first two verses, verses 19 and 20, are uh, we're, we're just going to look over them. Uh, I'll give you a summary statement that could uh, summarize these two verses together. But the reason we're just going to go through it really quickly is because back when we started chapter 24, if you look back at verse 1, it's literally the same topic. It's the same subject. Um, And this shows you uh, that there is unity in this chapter, but the way we're taking the Proverbs, I don't think it's necessary to revisit the same exact thing uh, that we studied uh, very recently. Uh, not being envious of those who are evil. And the ultimate conclusion, uh, the ultimate point, I think, that the Lord has for you in verses 19 and 20 is that vengeance belongs to the Lord, that you should not be envious of evil people, no matter how much they prosper, no matter how much they seem to gain in this life, because there's no reward for them. Their candle will be snuffed out because the Lord will have his vengeance, even if it doesn't happen in this life. Okay, and if you want to, Learn more about that. I'd refer you back to uh, the lesson. It's I'm pretty sure it's uploaded online on verses one through uh, two. I think something like that. Maybe we took a longer section there, but at least twenty four one uh, touches directly on that theme. Then verses twenty one and twenty two. Um, we'll spend a little bit of time here, where uh, again Solomon writing to his son. Right. So always remember that when you're reading through the proverbs, remember. These are like a father and son sitting down to talk, right? This is not some ivory tower thing where 
you know, the father stored it in the wall and hoped that his son would discover it generations later after he was dead and then his son became king. Solomon is a king preparing his son and or sons for the place that they would have, much like Saul and Jonathan, right? Saul would have been preparing Jonathan uh, for his role as the next king to be, but as we'll see in 1 Samuel 18 this Sunday morning, Lord willing, uh, Jonathan relinquishes that to David. Uh, but you have that concept in the book of Proverbs that Solomon is raising up the next generation. Right? That's what Proverbs is about, raising up uh, sons in particular. But there is plenty of wisdom for uh, daughters in here as well. Um, so, <clears throat> my son, verse 21, fear the Lord and the king. Right? So he's talking about himself. Um, and meddle not with them that are given to change. Um, some translations might have a, a mark in the margin uh, to, to show you that it doesn't really say to those that are given to change, but it says to meddle not with changers, right? To people who are um, duplicitous. Um, uh, <clears throat> and part of the reason of this, right? So he's telling him not just to fear God, but also to fear the king, to fear the heavenly power, but also to fear the earthly power. So when he gets into verse 22 and speaks about calamity coming upon someone, who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about those people who are given to change, right? those who are tossed to and fro, we might say in the words of Paul. Uh, Matthew Henry says about this, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, civil power here. Uh, he says, religion and loyalty, so honoring, fearing God and the king is his idea there, religion and loyalty, must go together. As men, so as created, it is our duty to honor our creator, to worship and reverence him, and to be always in his Fear, right? That's what it means in summary statement to fear the Lord. But then he says, as members of a community, you could argue that um, Matthew Henry here is talking about the two kingdoms, the heavenly kingdom where we serve God uh, directly and then the earthly kingdom where we serve God through um, the civil realm, as it were. Uh, but he says, as members of a community, incorporated for mutual benefit, meaning communities are made, groups of people are formed together, not, not talking about the church, though that's true, but groups of people formed together and come, become communities for mutual benefit. And because that's true, it is our duty, he says, to be faithful and dutiful to the government that God has set over us. So because of what community is, it's for our mutual benefit, right? So communities, towns, states, nations, all those things, um, neighborhoods, uh, the old concept of villages and things like that, uh, families even, uh, they are created and incorporated together for the benefit of those who are in that community. And because of that, there's going to have to be a governor. Notice Matthew Henry doesn't just point to a king because some people go to this and say, well, why don't we have a king? That's not really the point. It's those who are in um, political power or civil power might be a better term. We have a duty to be faithful to them. And that's you know, Matthew Henry, again, commenting on uh, these two verses. Uh, maybe a New Testament passage that comes to mind, one that became especially 
um, harped on and focused upon during COVID and things after. It was Romans 13, right? Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Let every soul, every man, be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. So except that which is from God. So if they're there, it's because God put them there. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, so whosoever resists that civil power, resists the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. That's not all Paul says there. Of course, we compare Scripture with Scripture, as we'll do in just a moment, uh, and see that Paul is not teaching there a blind obedience where if we're called to sin by our civil leaders that we must do so out of fear of damnation. But you see it's rooted not just in the New Testament but in the Old as well. Fear the Lord and the King, those who are in authority over you. Um, And then to speak of changers uh, for a moment, I I think that that kind of makes it stick out in your mind more than saying those that are given to change. I, when, I, when I think of that word, I think about um, the house in the Gospels, whether it be built on the rock or built on the sand, right? someone who is shifty, right? someone who is not built on a good foundation. Uh, but Matthew Henry, I think that's who I'm quoting here as well. Yep. Uh, why go anywhere else? Uh, he says, Have nothing to do, he does not say, with those that change, for sometimes change is for the better, right? But those that are given to change... Those that affect change for the sake of change, out of a discontent with that which is, and a fondness for novelty, or a desire to fish in troubled waters. He says, meddle not with those that are given to change, either in religion, so either as it pertains to the fear of God, don't give in to them, nor as it pertains to civil government. So don't give in to them as well. Come not into their secret. Join not with them in their cabals, nor enter into the mystery of their iniquity. Now I want to talk about that for just a moment, about the danger of changers, right? Not someone who changes for the good, because we know that repentance is change, right? Repentance is turning from sin unto righteousness. So that's not what God is speaking against here. He's talking about people who are changing for change's sake. Um, Ephesians 4, 14 might be the verse. I mentioned it earlier, but maybe it's one that came to mind. And Paul talks about uh, the purpose of the ministry there. And he says that the ministry has been established that we, henceforth, meaning that we Christians under the ministry under the work of the church, as it were, might no more be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So you see that part of the work of the church, Ephesians 4.14, is to see to it that her members are grounded in the truth, grounded in it. Not to be like children who are tossed to and fro, carried with every wind of doctrine. Now, this is a question that we ought to ask ourselves. How easily are we drawn to new doctrines? 
Because we are, right? We read books. Maybe some of us read books. We listen to things. We read the papers. We watch the news. We watch shows. Doctrines always being thrown at us, right? Uh, in one way or another. How easily are we drawn to new doctrines? Because it is not a mark of maturity to change simply to change. And I would also argue that it is also not a mark of maturity to embrace the truth too quickly. Right? <laughs> Let me work that out for you. To embrace the truth too quickly. Now, really the only way that can happen is by the mercy of God, where you end up within the truth too quickly from a natural standpoint. And luckily the Lord cleans up the mess, right? And what I mean is um, <clears throat> families or men or women or whoever that read a lot of theology or that even, you know, just study things, studious people, right? They can sometimes come to the truth in such a way that they actually become an enemy to the truth in the way that they hold to it, right? So that's what I mean when I say you come to the truth too quickly, or you almost come to maturity in an immature way. Right? It's just t talking about it in a human element, right? Not dismissing the words of the text, right? But it's not a mark of maturity to simply embrace the truth when you see it, because let's be quite honest, we don't know the truth that quickly. It takes time. And in the Lord's providence, sometimes we fell into it a lot quicker than we ought to have. Um, but thanks be to God, that's His work uh, to clean and take care of. But the Lord, we're told, would have us not be given to change. We should be patient even when growing in our understanding of the fear of the Lord and also the fear of the king, we would say. He would have us not be led by those who are given to change as well. This is a warning, yes, about departing from old doctrine. Uh, there's that verse in uh, is it Isaiah or Jeremiah, depart not from the old paths. Um, Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah. Um, in Isaiah, yeah, depart not from the old paths. And, and what you actually get, the way people use that doctrine or, or use that verse, is they mean don't depart from the things that we believed when I was growing up. And that's not what it means, right? It means to not depart from the truth, right? What you believe when you were growing up might not be the truth. It could be an old path, but that doesn't make it the old path, right? The old and um, faithfully trotted path. It's a warning, yes, about departing from old doctrine, not old false doctrine. But while it's also not being a command to refuse doctrine that is new simply because it's new, right? Because let's be honest, um, you know, you, you learn, I mean, just coming to this church, I mean, most of you... Uh, maybe everybody in this room were not raised Presbyterian, right? When you are exposed to some of the teachings of it, like sometimes it takes a while to embrace some of the things, right? And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Don't be ashamed that it took you a while to uh, come and embrace uh, some of the teachings. Now, of course, we have uh, way more in common uh, with uh, traditional Christianity uh, than we do in uh, difference, uh, but still, some of the things that are different can be quite shocking, and there's no need to be ashamed of that. 
Um, even when moving from error to truth, you need to do so with patience. I, I kind of think about this um, at, in an analogy of like using a new tool, right? Where somebody has told you this new tool that you've never used before can do a lot better job than this one you've used for 15 years. And you're like, eh. right? It takes you a while. You're going to take some time. You might not ever even buy that new tool. Maybe you're working with somebody one day and they have one and you use it. And you're like, oh, you were right. right. But you didn't just rush to it because someone told you this is the best. This is the truth, as it were. Right? There's a patience that should even be taken when we're talking about fearing the Lord, growing in our doctrine, and growing in our understanding of civil government as well. Um, now, what this does not mean is you, this does not mean that you should delay in repentance. Right? That's not what I'm saying. Right? If you know that you are living in sin or something is going on that you need to repent of or give to the Lord that you haven't, right? that's not what this is talking about. Right? That's a kind of change that we always want to seek immediately, quickly. Right? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? That kind of truth needs to always be pressing upon us. But in matters that may not have immediate consequence, we should be patient and submit ourselves to the process. Now, don't imagine, again, that this only applies to theology. This warning applies to civil matters as well. Um, to use an example, uh, something like political revolution. Our, our country was founded on the basis of revolution. It just was, right? The American Revolution, the Revolutionary War, right? It was uh, revolting or uh, rebelling or whatever term you want to use. It was uh, turning against uh, a one power in the name of serving another. Um, political revolution may be sometimes called for but it is not always called for, right? Don't be one who is given to change just for change's sake. And it should only be entered into with great hesitation. Uh, and anytime I start talking about the, the political aspects of Scripture, um, I, I immediately feel the tension because um, we live in an age where uh, religion and, well, it's not actually, but... On paper sometimes, and certainly in speech, people want to say that we want to separate religion and politics or religion and government. We know that's impossible, right? We know it's impossible. But I always think about the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry. Um, when he addressed people like the Roman centurion, right? Um, the Roman government... The Roman centurions would be servants of um, the Roman officials, right? Uh, the, the civil power that was in control of the area in which Jesus was raised. Um, when Jesus addressed the Roman centurion regarding his servant, now, this Roman centurion, was, he was not a Hebrew. He would not have gone to worship in the temple or anything like that. But when Jesus confronted him, remember the centurion, he had this servant. And he was sick and ready to die, it says in Luke 7. Jesus had entered into this audience of people. Um, 
And the centurion, now remember, he's like a, a leader of a platoon, basically, in the Roman army. He heard of Jesus, Luke 7 says, and he sent to him the elders of the Jews. So evidently he knew some. Beseeching Jesus that he would come and heal his servant. They came to Jesus. They pleaded with him um, that this man, this Roman centurion, he said, he's worthy for you to do this because he loves our nation. Right? So he loves the Hebrew people and he had built them a synagogue. And Jesus went with him, Luke 7 again, uh, and he was not far from the house. And the centurion, what he does is he, he sends these messengers out to meet Jesus because Jesus is on, on his way to uh, the house. And the centurion says, through the servants. I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Remember, you know, it's kind of a play on worthiness there, right? The Jews had said he's worthy. Jesus said, or he says to Jesus, I'm not worthy. Um, and he says, because of this, uh, because I'm not worthy and because I understand your power, um, all you have to do is say a word. Right? Just, just speak and my servant will be healed. He hadn't been healed yet. Jesus didn't tell him that that would happen. But he says, For I am a man also set under authority. I have soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And Jesus heard these things. And he says, leave the Roman army immediately. Is that what he said? He marveled at him. He turned him around and said to the people that followed him, I have not found so great faith, not in any part of Israel, right? to a Roman centurion. And they were sent back, returned to the house, and found the servant whole that had been sick. Now, why do I say this? Jesus doesn't tell him to release his servants. He doesn't tell him he's unjust for being a centurion. He affirms the order of the man's life and compassionately heals the servant. Now, it seems to me if Jesus were one given to change or one who was a revolutionary, right? There's, that's really popular to call Jesus a revolutionary. Then maybe he would have used this opportunity to bring about some change in this Roman centurion's life. But he didn't. He didn't tell him to leave his position. He didn't tell him to go tell the Roman official over him to shove it or anything like that. He sent him home with the man healed. And this interpretation, it, it, it's not complicated. It's right on the surface of Luke 7, but I think it plays back into Proverbs 24, verses 21 to 22, because there are those who are changers, all right. There are those whom uh, would have us run for alarm or think that everything needs to be changed all the time and they can't stand the status quo. And the Bible says of Proverbs 24, 21 and 22, that those who are changers, those who are given to change, are those whom calamity will rise upon suddenly. All right. And again, I'm not denouncing all revolution. That's not the point. But there are two that appear to carry on this judgment. That is God and the king, right? based on the context. 
Therefore, I would say, be cautious about those who play loosely with God and also with his civil servants or would have us pursue disorder in a blind fashion. But this, again, is not called to blind obedience because you remember Acts 5.29, one of our, again, favorite verses uh, through COVID, we ought to obey God rather than men. Both of those things are true. Um, Before I go quickly through the last few verses, anybody have anything on verses 21 and 22 they want to question, talk about? Okay, let's go to 23 to 26 then. We'll spend our last few minutes here. Verses 23 to 26, he says, These things also belong to the wise. Um, And he's not talking about uh, people with wisdom in general here. This is a term that normally refers to those who have the power of judgment, right? Those who would have been like uh, civic elders sitting in the gates. You know how they would go to the gates in the Old Testament and they'd meet with the elders. They would help them decide their cases and all those things. Um, Of course, the principle applies to everyone, but this word in particular normally applies to those who are in places of power. And it warns those who are in the place of judgment not to show partiality. It says uh, some would render uh, this phrase, show partiality. I don't know what your translation of the Bible says, but the the New King James, I believe, does say uh, show partiality. The King James says respect of persons. Uh, but uh, a more literal reading that doesn't make a whole lot of sense on the surface, but you can think about it and it'll come to you, is to recognize faces. When you're in a time of judgment, it is not good, he says, to recognize faces. Why is that? Because you'll, because you'll be drawn away from justice. You'll be drawn to emotion, Right? Um, not to use uh, a crude or harsh example, but uh, parents, you know, when you're wanting to uh, discipline your children and (laughs) they look you in the eye, right? And they're sad and you recognize the face and then your desire to render judgment fades away. And sometimes that's good and necessary, but sometimes it leads you to not carry out discipline when you should, right? Uh, That's the principle that's being addressed here. Those who have the power of judgment are warned of the danger of showing partiality. He says, if you have the judgment seat, if you are among the wise and you behave this way, the Lord warns that the people will curse and abhor you. You got to think about how the Proverbs, how how they work here. They are, they're promises, but they're given in ways that Uh, the Lord doesn't always say, if you do this, then this will happen. He says, uh, it's not good to have respect of persons uh, in judgment. It just, it isn't. Uh, He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, that man, the people will curse. Doesn't say they ought to or they shouldn't, it just says they will. Nations will abhor him. So if you have that judgment seat, whether you're civil, ecclesiastical, uh, in the home, uh, in the workplace, whatever it is, the Lord warns that people will curse and abhor you if you recognize 
faces, if you turn a blind eye to the law. A great blessing is promised if you refuse to recognize faces. That blessing there that maybe doesn't sound like a blessing to you, especially if you're a dude, every man shall kiss his lips, that gives a right answer. All right, but this, the point is that a wise man will have the affection of his people. Right? Some of the greatest kings and leaders of old uh, were loved by their people. And is there a passage that comes to mind when, when you hear me say that every man shall kiss his lips that gives a right answer? What's another free, uh, passage in the Bible that speaks about kissing someone? Anybody know? Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. Right? Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't say kiss his lips, but it says kiss the son. Show affection to him, love and serve him, right? Psalm 2 should come to mind. We are to recognize the holiness of the kingship of Christ and kiss him, lest he be angry. Of course, he's the perfect image of this. Um, but it's important for us to remember, uh, again, another thing that you got to learn about reading the Proverbs, that the Proverbs declare to us how things ought to be. Because let's be honest. If a man is righteous today and doesn't respect persons, he doesn't recognize faces, and he rules very simply according to the law, and if he says to the wicked, you are wicked, he will be cursed by the people. Right? We live in an age where the very opposite is the case, where kings rule and reign, both locally, foreign, and, and all that, where the opposite is the case, because these Proverbs declare to us how things ought to be. The people should be in such a state of mind that if their rulers say to the wicked, you are righteous, they should curse him. The foreign nations should hate him, but we don't. The people should respond in such a way when partiality is shown, but they don't always do that. And the reason I bring this up is because a, a very practical application is, um, especially, again, the, the world has drastically shaken since COVID. Um, uh, the foundations have been revealed in a lot of ways, um, and we cannot assume that the way we are told to respond by those who have led us in how to respond for so long, we cannot assume that the way that they tell us to respond is the way that we actually should respond, right? That blind following, right, that, that we have taken for granted, right? You could think of so many instances. The, the most conservative news network on television, Fox News, right? They ran off the most conservative man they had on their staff, Tucker Carlson, right? That's just one example, right? Now, why is that? Right? What is different about him compared to the other people? Is it, you know, bigger discussion, but is it because that he grabbed a hold of something like this, that the things that they are telling us are wicked are not really wicked, right? 
The things that they're telling us are righteous are not really righteous, and then they could no longer tolerate it. He's just an example of that principle. Now, when I say don't assume that the way you are told to respond in the news and, and whatever, in your, your circles that you go to when you have breakfast with people, don't assume that the way you're told to respond is the way you ought to respond. I don't mean for people watching CNN, because none of y'all do that, right? I mean for the people who are watching the conservative stuff. We have been brainwashed, right? We just have. Don't assume that just because they declare something is wicked that you should therefore agree with them, right? We should measure all things by the Scripture. We just should. The Bible calls us to. It's sufficient to do so. And we're to kiss the lips, to kiss the Son, ultimately, because He always gives the right answer, but don't just assume that because you fear the Lord, that the king, the rulers over you, the leaders, whatever, that they're going to be leading you rightly, that you're going to have perfect discernment. Okay, that's all the notes I have, and I don't want to meddle anymore. Um, anybody else have anything? Uh, questions, comments? quiet. All right. Well, let's close in prayer.